Welcome listeners to another episode of Talking Addiction and Recovery Podcast. I am your host, Andrew J. Schreier, and today I'm joined by Kevin McNevin-Clark, and you're going to learn a lot about him, what he does in his book, The New Prophet. Uh, Kevin, welcome to Talking Addiction and Recovery Podcast. Thanks for joining. Yeah, thanks for much, so much for uh, having me on, Andrew. My pleasure. So, you have found deep purpose through your work in the behavioral health field, specializing in treating addiction and trauma. You hold a degree in psychology and has been on your own path of waking since 2005, getting sober and entering recovery in 2006. You found Excelsior Addiction Services, LLC in 2020. And it'll be interesting to learn more about that. And you also reside in Virginia with your family and living by your guiding philosophy that there are no hopeless cases. And I, I love that ending part, um, no hopeless cases, because everyone you work with, me as a, as a counselor, as a clinical supervisor, like you always got to believe with everyone that you work with. Yeah, you got to believe that there is, you know, the possibility for change, uh, believe in miracles. And I mean, when you've seen it firsthand, or experienced it firsthand and seen it so many other times, you know, that like, no matter, like they say in the 12 step rooms, no matter how far down the scale somebody has gone, you know, they can find a way out. Yeah. And, uh, and I don't know, I, I'm a believer in that because statistically I probably was, if we we're going by statistics, a hopeless case at one point in my life, but there was people that believed in me and it was just so important to have those people uh, to kind of carry me when I didn't have, you know, any belief in myself. Yeah. That's the hard part. You know, like people ask often, you're like, how do you, how do you keep doing this when the rates are the way they are and, and how often people do this? And, you know, no matter, I've worked with people who've been in multiple treatments, people who've seen me quite a few times and no matter what, as long as someone's still seeing me, as long as someone's still trying to get help, as long as someone's still, you know, breathing and alive, you always have to hold on to, to the idea that there is hope that they can change and hope that they can get better. Yeah. Otherwise we're in the wrong business, I think, you know? Yeah, exactly. So first, you know, one thing you've coming on here, second, you know, the work you're doing, you know, greatly appreciated for a lot of people who need it and, and using your story and what you've gone through and trying to grow that, you know, with what you've been doing and your book was really amazing and excited to talk about that. So before we dive into it, though, there's definitely more than you than just being like the author of this book. And there, there's a lot more that you have done. So is there is there anything you really want to share about like your journey and how it led you to being the author and even founding Excelsior Addiction Services? Yeah, I mean, I guess if I hadn't gotten sober... I definitely wouldn't have written a book um, and I wouldn't have gotten sober had I not gone through the depths and hell that is active addiction. Um, I, I'm fortunate in that I got sober when I was 22 years old. Um, my addiction began when I was 13, progressed fast. I think there was already the groundwork kind of a... Um, you know, I quote this a lot because it makes so much sense that genetics loads the gun and environment pulls the trigger. So looking back at like family history, there's a lot of people with mental health and substance use stuff on actually both sides of my family, um, particularly my dad's. And I had a personality type that was impulsive and highly emotionally reactive. Um, I was outgoing too um, until there was a childhood trauma that happened and I kind of turned inward drugs came around. It seemed, it was a, a way for me to get a little bit more comfortable in my own skin for the time being, you know, until that didn't work anymore. It's amazing that you mentioned the family piece. Cause it's common that I'll have people tell me that, you know, their, their father, their mother had a problem with alcohol or drugs or like their grandfather, like they will tell me that, yeah, this has been in my like family history. They see it, but they don't really like understand it right away. What that means. Right. Like there's a point where all of a sudden you 
you understand more about like what the that means and where that comes from and it's hard to tell when that shifts you know what i'm saying like how do you get to that point where you're all of a sudden looking at like my family history actually means a lot more than just my parent had a drug addiction or alcoholism yeah i mean i think therapy or step work like depending on or both helps a lot with that because you really start to identify the patterns and then you kind of start to the more self-awareness you have like I could be walking along and I feel disrespected and all of a sudden I recognize I'm acting out on like conditioning from my dad on like when I'm perceiving that I'm being disrespected and can choose to instead respond in that moment differently um, and I have this story I always tell it's with my daughter. She's actually my stepdaughter. She's 19 now. Um, but one time she came home, a teenager, very angry, said something, hor- what I perceived as very disrespectful to her mom. Um, uh, probably something to me too, stormed up the stairs. I, I go up following her. I get to like the top, almost to the top of the stairs. And I realized exactly what I just said that I was acting out on this like I'm gonna go knock on this door and be like hey you don't talk to me this way (laughs) you know something like that that's something that's ineffectual right Um, and instead I knock on the door I give her a hug she cries on my shoulder but yeah I mean I think like if that's what you're talking about like the awareness of how much our family conditions us and how it's passed down and down um, and that the only way to break those patterns is through you know self-awareness toward change yeah i think there's a big difference between like yeah i know people in my family or i know this has been going on but understanding how that impacts you and how that affects you are two different things and i think your story shows that like you being able to be aware of that and recognize that is a, a greater sense of insight and awareness than just simply knowing how someone in your family is that's a really important piece right there yeah what the why you know right making sense of it understanding it instead of just kind of uh being like oh everybody in my family it's almost like the difference between you know saying everybody in my family is an alcoholic you know so of course i'm an alcoholic and the difference of saying uh yourself like yeah i'm an alcoholic so leave me alone this this is why I'm drinking before, uh, you know, 11 a.m. Right, right. And then when you get into like the 12 step rooms or the treatment and saying, yeah, I'm an alcoholic and I need help. Exactly. Yeah. Big difference. Now, the amazing thing, too, is you got sober at 22. Yes. Yeah. That is incredible for a few reasons, because there's a lot of people who the idea of being sober for someone who's been using or having an addiction, the idea of like being sober at 22 is probably something that they don't think can happen, but it's important to highlight that there are people who get sober at a very young age. You don't have to go through 10, 20, 30 years of this in order to reach sobriety and recovery. You can do it at a young age. All right. Absolutely. I mean, and there's no guarantee you're going to make it, you know, the longer you go out there. And what happened with me is I was physically separated long enough to take a hard look at where my life was going. And because I went to jail and that's how I was actually able to stop it. Because when I had that awakening in 2005, that was when I knew I wanted to stop using. Um, And I started to become aware of like, all the trappings of my mind, the rationalizations, the denial. And I realized I couldn't stop. Um, I tried, you know, controlling it every which way, Uh, you know, that step you take toward step one, where you find out you're powerless, you know, when you're in it. So, yeah, I mean, I, (laughs) that's pretty much what happened with me. What, what inspired you to, to write, the book, the new prophet, like at what point did that become something that you wanted to, to do? Uh, I think, well, I knew my first, my counselor, when I was in treatment, he was the first person I remember ever telling telling me that he saw me writing a book one day or that I should write a book one day, something like that. 
And then I saw him or talked to him a few years later, maybe for I was doing a paper or I was going to speak at like for the families um, at the treatment place. And uh, he told me that again. And then I remember my sponsor in the 12 step rooms told me and, I, and more people kind of told me this and it became like this knowing inside of me like, okay, I'm going to write a book. I'm, I'm going to write books. Um, part, I think I've always loved to write and I can communicate things in the written word that I can't always uh, elucidate with my verbal words um, outwardly. So my family, like all, all the, again, that Clark side of my family, there's a lot of writers involved. So I always thought I was the least of the writers, which was one of my blocks in probably doing this in the first place. Um, my brother's an incredible writer, but I guess to get back on track here, I had a knowing that I was going to write a book. Uh, the prophet inspired me. I studied it with a group of guys who I consider to be my inner circle. Uh, all guys who are in recovery from addiction. Uh, we meet once a week and have for years. And I think when I was studying it or when we finished studying it, I realized the first book I write is going to be the new prophet. Um, and it was just kind of like this thing that I was holding on to in my head I didn't know how it was going to look or when I was going to do it. Um, but I think I started to kind of almost prepare for writing it at that point, you know, a couple years before I actually wrote it. Yeah. And it was, I didn't know what to expect at first. And then when you read it, you know, it's, it's insightful, it's intriguing, it's poetic. And those are things you don't always, you know, find in typical you know, addiction or recovery or even mental health type, you know, stories. But as I, I was reading it, you know, I started, you know, finding out so many things about it that just made it a different type of book in comparison to some that I've traditionally like read or look at or ones that you see in like the addiction or like the self-help type like section of a bookstore. Right. So, you know, one of the things that I, I love about it is like you provide some clear definitions of, of things. So for all like the topics you cover, I appreciate the fact that you actually take time to define what it is that you're talking about. Because I believe sometimes the longer you do things or the longer that we think we know some stuff, like there's this automatic assumption that we know what it is. Hmm. But we have to remember like when we're educating, we need to like, like get down to the basics. And Absolutely. that gets to education. You do that for like every topic you cover. Yeah. And I think what kind of primed me for that is I work for Recovery Unplugged, which is a treatment center. I work there part-time now, but I worked there full-time for a few years and we have a principal a day and, you know, and you've ran probably tons of groups too. So, and I'm kind of like a believer in like 80% process, 20% psychoeducation, if I can get away with that, because I think every group should have some education, but, you know, keep the group as engaged as possible and talking about themselves. Right. But so I was talking about a lot of some of these topics um, and having my own kind of revelations, you know, throughout the years, I was developing more insight on them. Um, but I kind of learned that I, I taught on them for a while, I guess I could say. Um, so it helped me probably in defining them, but you're right. I mean, you tell somebody to practice self-care and that's a broad definition of what self-care can mean. You tell somebody, uh, encourage them to be vulnerable, but what does that mean? It's the same thing as we tell children to pay attention or focus, but we often don't teach them how to pay attention or focus, you know, so maybe teach them some meditation. Right. So I feel like that's the one of the great things about your book is like if any of these topics come up in a in a counseling session or like a therapy session or or anyone is even thinking about this, your book has like clear definitions of like what these things are. You know, I could sit there and be like, well, what do you think that means? And, and part of us can even dive into, well, let, let me show you this and let, let's talk about this kind of definition with that. So I, I really appreciate that down to basics because I, I believe sometimes we forget that with people, even if it's an adult that we're working with Absolutely. or a kid, 
-hmm. going down to the basics is really important as some, like you said, basic education level. Right. Yeah. If we don't understand the fundamentals, then how can we understand like the complexities? Right. The other thing that stood out was there are so many common themes and issues like found in addiction, recovery, like mental health, like treatment and all that. But there's also a lot of issues that we know are important, but don't necessarily get addressed in traditional counseling and therapy. So there's like the evidence-based curriculums or like right. there's the, the evidence-based stuff we talk about. And I'm not saying that isn't important, but it's amazing you find some of the topics that never get addressed or talked about, but we know it's important. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, because you have to use evidence-based techniques, right. And you have to document that you're using them. Um, so finding a creative way to integrate what we know is important with what we must have, um, which is also helpful. Uh, I think, I think it can be done for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're just looking at the index part, which is some of the things that are talked about, you know, you look at things of self-worth and you see you have things on diversity and presence and purpose and creativity, like leadership, intention. These are all things that we can all look at and be like, these are really important. But I guarantee you, if you would do like a word search and right. <laughs> some of the basic like curriculums or evidence-based like CBT things, or something. Yeah, you just, you don't find those words and you don't find these things talked about enough, but we can all look at that and be like, yeah, that's, that's important. That that's a part of life. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I was amazed and happy to see that your book covered some of those topics. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, I kind of wrote, I had an idea of some of the topics when I was sitting down to write it because one day I had an outline just kind of come out of me um, where I knew like the names of the characters and uh, a good majority of the topics, some of which I ended up not writing on some of which, and then a lot more that I did end up writing on that I hadn't written in the outline. Um, but we yeah, had, when I wrote it, I was doing this process called the artist way where you literally write three pages every day and so sometimes I'd just be writing nonsense, just keeping the pen mute moving. <laughs> yeah. And then I'd land on a topic and be like, I'm going to write more about this. Or I'd have like a thought come to me during the day. And then like, you know, I'm going to go, you know, pick up on this. I'm going to write this sentence and see what happens uh, on anger or something, you know? So I didn't know exactly what was going to come out. Um, George Floyd's death certainly inspired the diversity and collective trauma part because it was just like, I mean, uh, you just felt it and it was everywhere and I thought it was important. Um, so I think I wrote that the next day. Um, and then, you know, creativity that wasn't set out to be in there, but I'm like, I'm doing this whole creative process and I really believe that we need to be creative. Um, and it's such a, I mean, even with addiction, like if you're having a craving, one of the best things you can do besides like moving your body is something creative, you know, exercise or creative. It's a great way to kind of like, uh, manage the craving or manage the urge. And I think the great part about what your book does for every topic out there, every person can relate to it. Like even creativity, I know there's a lot of people who probably think they aren't creative. Like they don't have creativity. They don't have the creative side. Maybe they're not a writer. Maybe they're not like an artist or anything like that. But when you speak on these things and write about these issues, you talk about it that anyone can use that creativity and how to do that or what that means. It doesn't say being creative means you have to love drawing. Right. But yeah, it, it think, gets it gets into as to how anyone can really relate to these topics. Right. Well, yeah, that's what I mean. Like I think, and I mentioned it in there almost that sometimes people think creativity is just like, you know, painting and poems and all that, but like creativity can be cooking a meal or gardening. Like there's so many different creative things that we do. Some people creativity is like 
IT stuff that I don't even understand, you know, but like <laughs> they're creating something, you know, oh, yeah. and for them, that's what it is. So yeah, it's just, uh, yeah. So I, I believe, yeah, everybody's got creative gifts. It's just sometimes, or sometimes it's forgotten what they are and it's getting back in touch with them. True. And I think it also becomes healthier minders for people who, you know, depending on what they're going through or their struggle or whatever issue is going on, that it's also good reminders of things that they may have done in the past or experienced in the past and may have forgotten or the substance use took over everything and going back to that, because I've seen a lot of people who they've been creative, they've done a lot of great things, substance use took over mm-hmm. and they feel like they can't go back to that. You know, I've, I've had a guy who was a musician and I've kind of talked about this before where, you know, believing he was one of the best musicians, even though he was high all the time. Right. And once got sober, didn't think he could ever do that again. Like that, that was kind of over with because the drugs was over, but now being able to do that sober has been a a brand new thing to enjoy the music he was playing, to be creative. So I think that's important for people because when the drugs go or the alcohol goes, some people think everything also goes with it. And that's, that's not the case. It doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And sometimes a lot of the times it's almost the addict mind kind of calling you back, giving you excuses to kind of, you know, like, oh, you landed your first big deal because you had a few drinks that drinks that day. But then like, look at like what happened all those other times. Uh, you know, yeah. I remember I had a client and he thought, you know, his marijuana use was like what was like fueling his creativity and music. And he, I was like, well, how many instruments did you learn uh, how to play before you started smoking weed? And he was and he said seven. And I said, well, how many have you learned since you started smoking weed? And he said, none. <laughs> yeah. I was like, yeah. You know, it's like sometimes it's just the deception is just heavy. Um, yeah. Re- that, that guy I talked to about the musician, like he he's looked at old videos of him playing and he goes, I don't even remember that. <laughs> so part of it's yeah. like, how do you how do you think you were the best when you can't even remember what you did and it to me that's kind of like the syndrome of the person who thinks they're super social and they're everyone loves them when they're drinking but like the real picture is like no one wants to be around that person like they're they're sloppy or they're just like all over the place but they think they're like all all that but in reality that's not the case yeah yeah i think that's awesome yeah that happens a lot they're they're on video just dancing by themselves in the corner because nobody actually wanted to be around them. Right. But believing that like, I'm a better person when I'm drinking or I'm more social when I'm drinking, or I can, you know, play music better. or I can do this when I'm under the influence, like more often than not my experience and the stories I've heard from clients and patients is the exact opposite, but that's what the addiction wants to tell you. Yeah. And I think in early recovery, it's especially difficult because you're going through, you know, all the post-acute withdrawal syndrome stuff and just a lot of uh, trying to even create, like you're trying to keep to like all this advice that's given to you, but also somehow like learn how to have fun um, because you kind of have forgotten how. Right. Yeah. so there's a period of time where it's like you just kind of got to push through and eventually you get to that place where you can do anything you want to sober. And it's going to be a little uncomfortable. And I tell people when I educate people sometimes on like what the body's going through, like your body hasn't recovered yet. So the idea that you might not have a lot of fun with it or it might seem boring, like that's also not just like your mind, but that's also like your body going through like recovery period so the first time you might go try and do something i'm not saying it's gonna be the most fun ever i'm not gonna say it's it's not gonna light up your adrenaline or it's not right. gonna give yeah. you dopamine like the drugs did yeah yeah, yeah. but it's been you flooding can, your brain for a yeah. while <laughs> but if you continue doing it for a while and you keep at it 
like you will start to enjoy things again. You will start to have that natural, you know, levels of dopamine and serotonin. It's not going to be that drug rush that you had, but you've, there is a lull period where things don't seem fun. They seem dull, but your body's recovering. And I always tell people, this is one of the signs that it's getting back to normal is when you have one of those good old belly laughs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, joy. Where people tell me like their sides were splitting and they were almost crying and they they've never laughed that hard before. And I go, that's the sign. That is a sign that your body is getting back to that, being able to experience that without drugs. Yeah. Joy. That, yeah. Something that's already there, but you've been kind of cut off from it for so long. And yeah, you, your brain has to heal. Your body has to find balance again. And that doesn't happen day one. No. Yeah, day, day, day one, a couple days into sobriety, that does not happen. I know a lot of family members and loved ones and, and friends think that, oh, if they stop using, things will be better. You know, things can get better, but it's not an automatic thing. When people stop using, it's not the most joyous thing. It, it is a struggle. It is hard. It is challenging. Is it the right thing to do? Absolutely. But it's not like I stopped today and now I feel so joyful. No, it, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's challenging to say the least. Yeah. It's a lot of work in the beginning. Yeah. I know, I know my work for most of my career has been in substance use. I know that's what you do too. But one of the things I love about your book is it applies to like everyday life stuff. Like no yeah. matter what situation you're in, you're experiencing, whether it's someone that's got mental health issues, whether it's substance use, whether it's, you know, problems with school or job or work or so. I mean, this covers so much like guidance, help, support, knowledge on a lot of everyday life challenges and experiences. Yeah. We have audiences for humans, really, you know? Yeah. Um, which is amazing so when you knowing that you do work with substance use did you recognize that this was going to be more than just that this wasn't just going to be a book for someone with substance use but that this was going to have such a far out reaching audience yeah i i did recognize that um because i i mean i knew it could apply to anybody, especially people that are open to like their emotional experience. Um, Cause I remember I was talking to my dad and I was all fired up about it. And he was like, well, what's the audience? And I'm like, pretty much anybody. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like if you're open to, you know, looking inward, then this book is for you. Um, because yeah, I tried to cover as much of that inner human experience as possible. So, yeah, yeah. I kind of, I knew kind of going into it, there is obviously a lot of recovery influence in it. I mean, recovery is a big part of my life. And, uh, but I think more so like, you know, what connects all of us is our humanity, our empathy. Um, to me, spirituality, and I talk about it in there, it's, I mean, it's really like, simply put it's just the connection that we all have and you can't deny it we're sharing the same world you know we're sharing the same air uh like we're connected even if that by that alone we're all on the same marble (laughs) right i think that's what's the amazing part is this can connect a lot of people who are going through different things but can use some of the same guidance help and support in, in going through it where someone's like, well, that's not me or that doesn't apply to me. Like this does apply to, I don't know anyone who I would see, you know, as a, as a counselor or even just anyone that I know where you couldn't say, oh, here, here's this book. Oh, this doesn't apply to you. This wouldn't work for you. Like there's no one that really, I think fits that mold. Yeah. Yeah. So that's awesome. That's yeah. A good thing. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's where like, whether I'm working with someone with substance use, whether I'm working with someone with mental health, whether I'm working with someone who's coming in with marriage problems or someone who's coming in with, you know, any type of issue, like this is a potential resource for any of those people. And you don't have a lot of 
books or a lot of things that can fit all that, but this is one that that does. So it's a great yeah. resource for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, I think one of my friends, the review she left it was like, you know, it has like all of life's little gems, like, you know, all the kind of important lessons in there. So whatever you're going through, you can look it up and find like something to kind of like see yourself in and maybe give you like a little bit more insight into the experience and hopefully help you kind of navigate it in a healthier way than you may without that, without that uh, information. Right. Um, how you describe things, I find incredibly insightful and it, it shines like a light directly on like areas people don't necessarily see or understand. And I think what's great about it is you don't use like professional jargon. Mm -hmm. You don't use like diagnostic terms. So to me, you explain it in such a way that even like kids could understand it. Like I yeah. like, could read it and know what it is, but yet it's so insightful. You don't have to explain it so much to where you're like a professor teaching about it, but you really make it insightful and it doesn't take a lot of words. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. I mean, that's uh, that's actually really good feedback and I appreciate it. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, there is like, if, and you like being in the field, like you could probably read certain parts and be like, Oh, okay. He's talking about Gorski's denial patterns here. Like when I started talking about denial, I was like, Oh, I'm going to write about like the different levels of denial, but in a way that like anybody could understand. Um, and then, you know, when I'm talking about trauma, there's like somatic experiencing or internal family systems and that kind of stuff. And so there is like, but if I, if I say internal family systems, nobody knows like, what I'm talking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that raises a lot of questions. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's just some examples, like, I just want to pull out from here that like, they're little light bulbs. Like all of a sudden you're just like, huh, like it turns on when you read this, you know, one of the the things that I've, these are all things I've underlined, but one of these is, I love this one. Most take the elevator down, then must use the steps to elevate themselves to new heights. Like also you're just like, wow, like that, like light bulb, like that is amazing to think about. But how often do we try and describe that in ways to get people to get it? And you try and use so many like reasonings and jargon, all that to try and explain to someone what that is. But that makes so much sense when you just read it like that. Um, yeah, thanks. You know, you know, another one is we realize the monsters under our bed are only monsters in our head. I mean, what better way to describe like anxiety and fears? Yeah. <laughs> like, someone who has a hard time, like really grasping, like what their anxiety is or like how their fears and whatnot are impacting them. Like you just read that and you're like, yeah, that makes total sense. Like, yeah. Like, am I running I'm... from a tiger or am I running from a tiger <laughs> that's in my mind? <laughs> yeah. Um, I found this one extremely important, especially with kind of like some of the things that's going on, you know, in, in today's society and treating one another, but smiling at your neighbor to your left takes none away from you sharing that same smile with your neighbor to the right. Light bulb. Like, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Why is it so hard to see it in that way? But yeah. then you, you must realize like in so many situations in everyday life, there, you're not seeing that, but then all of a sudden you read that and it shines a little light bulb on that. I love, there's so many I highlighted in here that you just read those and it's describes it in such an amazing way and it doesn't take that much effort. Yeah. And that's kind of what I was, I mean, I was kind of going for like, I tried to write from a space of presence because, because it was like poetry. Right. So I was just writing what came out. That was kind of the thing. And I also, I feel that when you kind of have what I would call spiritual wisdom written down, there's like layers to it. It's like you said, a child could read it and still understand something 
he could read it five years later and all of a sudden he has like a deeper meaning that he finds in it um so that's why i think it's cool just like you were talking about in your episode that i haven't finished listening to like with the story of the wolves and the snake which i haven't got to that part yet so don't spoil it for me but (laughs) but i think it's cool with that stuff because when you paint a picture with words um it gives you a different way to look at things yes i love that dr dyer quote it's like when you change the way you look at things the things you look at change so all of a sudden you have a different relationship with your anger or your sadness and i'm writing from the you know from the vantage point of someone who's done this work you know i've gone to lots of therapy i've done lots of various different things um for my own self-improvement um and I think that kind of helps because I can kind of just like hand somebody a map in this book and be like, here's what I know about it. And maybe it will help you. And that's kind of also what led to me writing the book is like, I work with a guy, he can teach like addiction in the brain and recovery in the brain, like nobody else. Like in the way he puts it is like, it lands with people. So when I think of an educator, I think of him. So I remember one time I was telling a client, I was like, yeah, Eric's the teacher, you know? Mm -hmm. And she was like, well, you're actually like a teacher too. And then I started to think like, okay, maybe I, I take some of this stuff for granted a lot of the time, you know, and maybe just put it out there in a book and see what happens. So, yeah, I, I believe that when you do find those ways, those are sometimes how you really reach people. So, you know, I, I like mental imaging. So like if I can get someone to imagine something, you know, mentally different and whether that's comparing it to something else or to kind of painting a picture for them, there's a lot of times like when I'm able to do that, like they see things differently and it kind of breaks through some of the, like the defenses that are there or the denial that's there. And even like relating it to something not strictly to like their substance use or mental health, but relating it to something like everyday life or relating it to something else going on. Like I was just this morning, this is, this is crazy. This morning I'm talking to a guy who at first he's telling me about marijuana use and how there's, there's no problem with it. And then he tells me he started using when he was 13. So, and he's in his like forties now. So he's been using marijuana for a long time. So as we're talking you know, and we're just, and we're going through some things. I was just telling him that, you know, when you're using it 13, you know, your, your brain's not developed yet. Mm. And at 13, that means for half of his brain's development, he was hitting that up with marijuana and, and the effects of that. And I just told him, I said, it's basically like, imagine two machines here. And this one machine is going through development and it's going through its growing stages and it's working out the way that it, it needs to. But then you got this other machine here that's trying to do the same thing, but, but we're adding something to it. We're adding something that's affecting how it works and, and how the parts do what they need to do. When it comes to the output, like it's going to have different things coming out of it. It's not going to be the same. And he, he just sat back and he goes, he goes, that makes perfect sense. Like that just, I didn't realize that that's what's happening to my brain. Yeah. yeah that, that's all to... it took. Right. Like, <laughs> it, it wasn't anything magical like that, but just for him to imagine like his brain as a machine and, and how smoking weed for so long while it was developing and functioning. Yeah. It's going to change what way the machine happens. operates yeah it's, sure. your, your brain's going to function differently than if you didn't smoke at all or if you at least waited <laughs> until it was fully developed and that yeah. got him to be like wow that that makes sense but some people use words some people use images yeah and all that i think your book has a really way of doing that this one is here here's the last one I, to to read like denial Mm-hmm. How complicated of a topic can denial be? Holy cow. That can yeah. be. Well, you can do like yeah, <laughs> all these 16 different definitions or whatever. Oh yeah. Like defining it, what it is, trying to convince someone that they're in denial or to point it out or talk about it. 
that that can be covered throughout someone's entire time in treatment or with someone's fight with their their disease. Mm. But look at this def this definition right here that you have of denial. When reality overwhelms the eyes, we find ways to learn not to see. That that's denial right there. Yeah. <laughs> that that's a very understandable insightful way of describing what denial is yeah yeah as humans we if we can't solve a problem we're going to go into some form of denial because otherwise it's just it's too difficult it's overwhelming (laughs) right and you and that's what i love with all the topics and all the things that you get into you use ways like that to describe it which is why I look at it as it's insightful, but it's also got that like poeticness to it. Yeah, that kind of catches you off guard and so that it can kind of deepen the impact a little. Yeah, for sure. You don't see that a lot. Like when people write their story of their addiction or their recovery, or when someone writes, you know, anything about it, you don't really see that that poeticness about it. It's almost become like a lost you know, writing form to help people and address people. Like we've gone into, you know, like being the very specific, the very technical diagnostic, like literature, academic literature type. Yeah. Dense. Correct. Very dense, but that's not something that people in treatment are going to read. No, not usually. (laughs) (laughs) You know, getting them to read something like this is actually very tangible and realistic, but also learn some of the very same things that they need to learn. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can give a client an assignment based on what he's dealing with or struggling with or wanting to change. Like, hey, just read this passage and then underline stuff and write down like how you relate to it or what it means to you and then open up a whole process there. Mm hmm. Have you, that kind of leads into a question that I have is your book, what stands out to your book about other people's book is there's, there's a lot of great books on there and, and people, you know, read them. And I think they might gain something or learn something and they might, you know, put it away, tuck it away on the bookshelf. What yours does and, and what stands out is it is one that could have continuous application to it and as i read it like i kept thinking of ways as to how this could be applied i mean you could read this one every day and keep going through it i mean it could be like a a daily meditation thing or a daily reading that you could do if someone was struggling with an issue like in particular about like loss or about like wanting to be a leader you could just say oh hey we'll read this chapter on it It, it's not going to take very long no a couple pages probably something like that yeah i could i could discuss it in session mm -hmm. you know if i were to have another book and be like well let's let's start and read this whole book (laughs) (laughs) in this in this 50 minute session but i could sit there and open this up and be like let's talk about this and yeah i've done it yeah i've done it for sure yeah so there are there a lot of different ways you've applied your book yeah, sometimes I've read it like before a group to kind of set the tone with the topic or at the end of the group even um, just to give them something to kind of think about as they go away from it. Uh, or in the middle of an individual session, a client's talking about his struggle with like guilt and shame. And I remember I read it to a client one time and he, be- he got like, you know, tearful in his eyes and like thanked me and said it was really helpful. So even just to have that because sometimes just having a better understanding of like what shame is liberates you from the shame itself. Right. Um, which is a main driver in uh, addiction and all self-destructive behavior. So yeah, I've definitely found ways to uh, incorporate it into different counseling sessions. Um, I'd like to somehow it'd be great if I could come up with like a curriculum with it and then like run like a group series with it and like the outpatient group that I do or something like that. Um, 
but I haven't taken time to do that yet. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you, your options really, and here's some ideas for you is. Yeah, I like it. I like your ideas. You can do specific ones based on the topic. You could also do a very standard, what are like five basic questions you could always ask for every chapter. Right. You, know, yeah. you can kind of go both ways. Like what would be like your the key, what are like the truly important questions that you could have asked for every single chapter? Like what are some key component? Like one thing would be like, how can you apply this to your recovery today or something like that? Yeah. But, yeah. but you could do that same five key questions or how many you want for each chapter, or you just dive into each specific chapter and find out what you can pull from that. So it's very doable to, to add in discussion, to add in written things. You've got it, the material there. This would just be the part you do afterwards. Yeah. So, yeah. That's a good idea. Actually, yeah. the, the questions that are the same for each one, but uh, those are both good ideas, actually. Yeah. So. Take take either one. Run with it, or if you don't like them, throw them away. But they're they're yours. the The one thing again that I want to go back to with the applications for this. A lot of times, I'll recommend books to people. Uh, I love reading in general, but I also love reading. You know, having authors on the podcast and interviewing them, but I've always been reading books by people in recovery or by professionals. The one thing that I do is I have them, I read them and then all of a sudden I'm talking about something with a client or a patient and a book will come to mind and I'll say, Hey, I got a book. I think you might want to read and check out. Definitely. And I'll, I'll give them the author and I'll, I'll recommend it. I'll be honest. 50 50 is a nice percentage, but half the time someone will come back and be like, yeah, I read that whole book that you recommended and we'll talk about it. I'm thankful anytime someone does and we can talk about it. I always feel good that I recommended it to somebody. I gave somebody a resource and, and Hey, if you want to read it, go ahead. If not, that's okay too. But what stands out about yours is it doesn't have to be a recommended go read this and let's talk about it maybe later we could read something from it right there definitely and then yeah that is that is a significant difference between what your book offers compared to some others yeah that's a good point because there's a lot of a lot of clients you know no matter what it is you're asking them to do out of the session the chances are less likely i mean sometimes you i I sit with a client i'm like let's just call and try and set that appointment right now (laughs) you know hasn't happened our last two sessions when i've checked in about it case management yeah you got a type right there where (laughs) you have a major appointment the last two times and you you tell me you've called you told me they didn't call you back they told me they didn't have any openings let's let's call right now and and find out what's going on but I like the idea of being able to, you could read one passage in there, one chapter, and that might really get them to want to read it. Right. Or they they might say, well, I really like that. And it might spark their interest. It's not that easy to do with some other books. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. They'd have to really really trust you and like to read probably. Yeah. If all of a sudden I hand them a book that's like 200 pages long. And I say, well, yeah, like it's a really good one, but to them, 200 pages might be very daunting. They might not have read a book that long in a while. The idea of doing that might not seem very intriguing or entertaining, but being able to sit there and be like, let's just read, you know, two pages in this, they're going to get a lot in just reading one chapter. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thanks. So that's where I also see being able to do that is in that session, in that, in that safe space that we hold for clients and patients Mm -hmm. is being able to read this with them and to have it in that moment versus why don't you go do this and we'll, we'll talk about it later. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's only going to take, you know, 
five, ten minutes of your time most. Um, probably probably only five minutes to do the actual reading part of it, you know. And then, yeah, they can if they want to find the book. Um, and a lot of times that does happen. I mean, I'll, I've read like the excerpt on spirituality before a group, and someone's like, "Hey, can you make a copy of that for me?" Uh, like, I never thought about spiritual. Like, you know, someone who was like had a really hard time with spirituality just because of the word spirituality they heard that and all of a sudden things clicked into place and made sense and you know like i said change your their entire relationship with what spirituality even means so yeah yeah for sure doesn't take uh you know it doesn't take a lot to uh land with somebody if you are using the right tool i guess yeah for sure and I think this is one that potentially, because of its format, because of the stuff that's talked about in it, the it's way it's written, yeah. it's very, it's like, it's like getting someone to try something. You know what I mean? Like if you were to, if you want someone to try something for like the very first time, or you want someone to try something for a little bit, and you think, you think of food, right? Like mm-hmm. that's what my mind went to food right away. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So <laughs> if you are trying to get someone to taste something that they've never had before or maybe they are a little weary of it or they have some reservations about it you just have them try something like a little bit that they can just get a sense of it you're not trying to overwhelm them mm-hmm. like oh you got to eat this whole entire thing you have to have all of this that's probably going to scare them it's probably going to freak them out they're probably yeah. going to want to do that yeah here's an elephant yeah yeah <laughs> for you you offer just like a little bit but that can really open the door to a lot of insight and and information but you do it in that way that is like yeah here's just a little bit you know someone could read this in a day yeah i yeah you could probably read it in a few hours (laughs) right (laughs) but it's not like trying to chew off such a big thing or a daunting thing it's just like a little bite to be like hey like open your mind a little bit. And that's kind of like what we were talking about, even at the beginning of this is just Mm. opening up and being willing to, that's all it takes. Yeah. And if you get full, it's lots of places where you can put it down and pick it up later. Right. So it's like something lands heavy with you. Cause I think sometimes it does with people sometimes. uh, I mean, some of my friends even have told me that they're, you know, been moved to tears in parts of it. So, you know, if you catch yourself actually processing some feelings when you're reading a part on inner child, you know, uh, put it down and be with that, you know, allow yourself to have that experience and then pick it up tomorrow or journal about it, you know? Right. That's not a recommendation too. If you look at extending it or adding it with, you know, questions or something like that, you might want to encourage people to also journal about what they've read in each one. That could be a good prompt to add to as we kind of spitball ideas for you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I could make a, I could make another edition of this book for actual therapy and treatment. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the, the last question I have is I love the fact that you, you signed it and you wrote the cage is open where where does that come from there's got to be something with that the cage is open that that's Uh, got some meaning behind it yeah so i think of well first of all bukowski he has the poem bluebird where he talks about bluebird in his heart um so there's a i mean there's so many stories about like caged birds right um the avid brothers who i love they have a song you know where he talks about uh broke broke into the cage and demanded that somebody free it you know um so the idea is that you can be free the cage is already open so just fly out and it's like an invitation to do so and i even talk about that in the creativity part you know it's essentially i forget what i said i have to look it up you have the creativity. Let's see. And see how easy it is to just like pull it up and make reference to it. Like you're not pouring through a, a yeah. college textbook and, and looking up the glossary and all that. Like it's so easy to reference. Yeah. So 
Creativity is freedom in its finest form. It gives flight to the bluebird in your heart. I feel like there was somewhere else in this book too that I mentioned something about it. But yeah, the idea is, you know, it's kind of like when you've been living in shame for so long, but you've done a lot of work and then all of a sudden you realize like your shadow is no longer behind you and you're surrounded by light. You know, it's all of a sudden you look along the outside, you look along, you know, the walls of your cage and you're like, wait a second, this door is open. Uh, <laughs> it's not closed like it was for yeah. so long. So just free yourself kind of, you know? Yeah. That's amazing. I, I really like that. Um, you know, that, like I said, that imagery and there's so many ways of which we've looked at multiple issues being caged in or being locked in or being trapped being stuck mm-hmm. and that relates to so many issues that you know people who are in counseling and therapy express or feel and wanting that freedom and getting that freedom you know are two different things and part of that what your book does is shows people how to unlock that you know whether it's through insight or inspiration or education and knowledge you know one of the things that they're going to learn from reading it is all the open doors and possibilities that that are out there yeah 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 i mean i think that's the hope for sure um and that's why you know and i also think that's why the timing of it is good because i think like you said the place we are in our country and in our world um we need more emotional awareness and freedom and emotional evolution than ever before and i you know, I talk about in there how the age of ego crumbles. And I really think we're at a good place for that right now, where a lot of these like structures that have been put in place, um, they're not working, you know, <laughs> and, and, and there's evidence of that. So more of a less of what divides us and more of like what connects us. Um, just like how we always hear, you know, the opposite of addiction is connection right so um really what connects us as people as humans and this book shows us that because if everybody reads it and they see themselves in it then it's kind of and that's why it's almost like if you write from your soul or like that depth of your humanity you know um and that's why i was really happy when i started to hear what people were saying because they were finding themselves in it or feeling seen which is a great thing or feeling understood um that's how you know we're all a lot more alike than we are different. So, right. And I think I was, this, this, this yeah. book definitely brings is more of a brings people together. And even though it feels like there's like an individual for sure journey, like when you read it and an individual part of it, like there is that this isn't just what I go through, but this is what other people go through, but also needing other people and all those kinds of things. So you go through like that individual, but larger picture. It's about more than just me and the unity and togetherness and like a a much bigger thing than just me. But I also have to start with me if I'm going to be a bigger part of that and do it in a way that's going to be for the better for all. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it definitely all, points to within so yeah starts it's all the inside job you know the individual um yeah that's a good way to put it absolutely so it's it's amazing i really recommend you know any of my listeners to to read it and it's definitely gonna be one i'm gonna be using like in counseling like in therapy you know recommending it to plenty of people it's really like we talked about there's really not some one that doesn't fit that who, who could use it, but they can go to your websites, the new mm-hmm. And they can also go to Excelsior addiction services.com just to learn more about you and what you do and the and services you have, which is great. And also checking you out on social media for, you got a Facebook account and Instagram, which is your name, Kevin McClark. Um, and then one is Kevin McNevin Clark, but just yeah. type in your name at Facebook or Instagram and they can find you. So once again, I, I really want to thank you for joining, sending me the book. 
A lot of great stuff here. It's also great to hear that there's also potential for further development along the way as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you're kind of like inspiring me to do that. <laughs> hey, that's um, part of what I do. So it, that's, that's the great thing about having you here is it, it leads to further stuff and things down the road too. So thanks again for joining uh, on this podcast today. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Andrew. It's uh, it's been great. So check out his stuff, learn more about him. And as always, I hope you learned something from joining in today's episode.